0: This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants
1: at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. We'd like to welcome our insecurities listeners back to one of our recurring segments here on the podcast, thanks to the SEC Institute at PLI. PLI continues to provide attorneys, accountants, and professionals with breaking news and detailed analysis regarding the ever-changing landscape in the legal and finance world. On today's episode, we are joined again by our good friend and four-time repeat guest George Wilson, the director of PLI's SEC Institute, to discuss current developments in accounting, finance, and the law, as well as to look ahead on the impacts of the new SEC leadership in 2021 and beyond. This podcast is being released in tandem with SEC Institute's quarterly newsletter for September 2021. And we dive deep on many topics covered in the newsletter today on Insecurities. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, Keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf.
2: It is good to be with you again, Chris, and back to our regular programming after a mini summer break a couple of weeks ago, when we invited listeners to check out an episode of our sister podcast, PLI's Pro Bono Files. If you haven't listened, I would highly recommend it. You can check out an episode in our feed, wherever you find podcasts. More importantly, Chris, as you mentioned, it is great to be back with our good friend, George Wilson. Like you said up top, George is a director of the SEC Institute at PLI, which provides up-to-date SEC reporting, compliance, and accounting education through innovative workshops and programs, including the SECI quarterly newsletter, which we're going to talk about today. All right, that's enough bio stuff. We've introduced George and the SECI before, but if you want to know more, you can always go to pli.edu slash programs SECI. And in any event, I think we would all agree that the real feather in George's biocap is his status as most featured guest on the Insecurities podcast. Chris, you nailed it up top. This episode marks lucky number four for our friend, Mr. Wilson. You can also catch him on episodes 7, 19 and 32. And because he is an experienced guest and generally a great guy to talk to, we're going to have a little fun today. We're throwing away the script and we're just going to riff on some SEC and accounting hot topics that are covered in the SECI quarterly newsletter for September 2021. George, it is great to have you back on the show. Are you ready to have a little fun
3: today? I am very ready, very ready, Chris and Kurt. It is a treat to be back here with you again. This is always such a great experience for me. And I simply have to say how much I've enjoyed all the episodes you've been doing. Your episode with the former chief accountant, Wes Bricker was fantastic. And I don't get to see the Bricker blueprint nearly enough. (laughs) It's such a neat document. Thanks for bringing that into the conversation. And I echo what you said about the pro bono webcast. It's such an important issue in today's world and bringing that closer to the surface and giving it some discussion is a great thing to do. So thanks again for the opportunity to be here and participate in the conversations that you guys create so delightfully.
1: We'll try to keep that delightful uh, chain going here, George. I can't I can't think of two guys I'd rather riff with, uh, Kurt and George, than you guys on, on SEC issues. FASB, uh, we know we don't usually get into a lot of the accounting standards. We'll do a little bit of that today as well, so you know I'm excited.
3: Oh me too, so excited. Goodwill <laughs> Kurt, Goodwill, Kurt maybe not.
1: Oh man. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a minute. There we go again. Chris, you're on a run lately with some I love of these it. topics. I love uh, it.
2: But we're gonna we're gonna make it fun. And you know, what could be more fun than starting the episode by talking about the SEC's regulatory agenda? All right, so let's get into it. In June, the SEC released its Spring 2021 Regulatory Agenda, which is affectionately known as the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs Spring 2021 Unified Agenda of Regulatory and Deregulatory Actions, which is a mouthful. Did we pull the acronym for that, Kurt? Oh my gosh, the acronym. <laughs> it's the UARDA, uh, you, you um, obviously. UARDA. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's pretty common. Um, all right. So, so the uarta uh, as it were, <laughs> has short and long-term regulatory actions that the SEC plans to take. In the press release announcing the agenda, SEC Chair Gary Gensler, this was, of course, his first regulatory agenda, said, quote, the SEC has a lot of regulatory work ahead of us, end quote, end uh, quote. Indeed. The agenda is ambitious. It covers everything from climate change and human capital management disclosures to board diversity, gamification, SPACs, cybersecurity, 10B51 plans, which we previously talked about with professors Dan Taylor and Alan Jagelinser on episode 38. Quick plug. Uh, Also wonky topics like custody requirements, short sale disclosure reforms, proxy voting advice and rules for electronic filings. It is a robust agenda to say the very least. George, there's a lot in there, but why don't you tell us what jumps out at you or what piqued your interest when you were reading through the regulatory agenda?
3: Oh, so many things happening here. So many things. It's kind of interesting because, you know, 10 years ago, the way the chair would use this agenda was almost kind of in a wish list fashion. Mm -hmm. And over the last probably eight years, four, five, six years, it's become more focused. And I feel Mm -hmm. like it sort of went back a little bit to the wish list approach. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting if you contrast the commission with the FASB. You know, at the commission, the chair gets to more or less set the agenda. At the FASB, it takes a vote of the members, and a majority of the members have to vote in favor of putting a project on the agenda for it to make the FASB's agenda. So the, the difference, and I'm just previewing a little bit of FASB stuff there for the later discussion <laughs> when we talk about that. That's right. Chris. But um, <clears throat> but w- when you look at the agenda, there's so much here. It seems like the the, the time it will require to accomplish all of this is going to be several years. Probably the first thing, and it's not necessarily a a surprise, is climate change. And I, I think you can argue we need some new guidance with respect to climate change. You know, the, the guidance that's there, financial release number 82, came along in 2010. It's been sort of a, a quiet in the background issue for most organizations. But obviously, in the last several months, it's kind of bubbled up to the surface for, for a variety of reasons. Uh, when you add ESG, To broaden that discussion, the amount of, and I think we probably will have a separate discussion about that later, but the amount of of different, the the, the gaps, the differences in how people think about the need for ESG disclosures, and then how you would ever do that. I think there's a lot of fun discussion to come from that. One of the things I thought was really interesting was a discussion in the agenda about enhancing shareholder democracy. Mm Mm-hmm and how that would work through the proxy process, what kind of disclosures need to be made. When you couple that together with all of the different ways people hold stock now through trading platforms like Robinhood and how many more shareholders there are, my gosh, there's been some interesting press about how much proxy solicitation costs have increased because of all these small shareholders. There are some interesting things to happen there. And then uh, something that's near and dear to me is SPACs. We did a big one-day SPAC conference back in the spring before all of the disruption from the restatements because the warrant accounting had sort of slipped mm-hmm. through the cracks. I think there's a whole bunch of stuff going on in the whole SPAC world. I have to think right now that the workload in Corp Fin is overwhelming for the staff. And when you try to put regulatory development and drafting on top of that it it's going to be a busy place to work. And then I would echo what you said also about the 10b5-1 plans. That's a, your 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 episode about those plans was fantastic. And the way those things seem to be able to kind of have some tricky uses, there's a lot of interesting stuff here. So I I <laughs> if I was going to summarize it as a person who doesn't actually have to work in the arena the way you guys do, I looked at this and I felt like a kid in a candy shop. There's so much interesting stuff going on.
2: I would certainly agree with you, George. And obviously, the the SPACs are are near and dear to our hearts as well. We talked about it in our deep dive into specs on episode 42 just a few weeks ago. Um, so I mean, George, look, the first question was a little bit of a softball. I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to pull the thread a little bit here, right? So you know, there's <laughs> okay. there's okay. there's an old saying that uh, when everything is a priority, nothing is mm-hmm. a priority. So. Now that we've lived with uh, Gary Gensler for a little while, we've seen the agenda. Uh, What do you think are the real priorities at the SEC or for Chair Gensler? And do you think that he's making any progress?
3: That is a wonderful question. And I think that trying to bubble that list down to the, you know, what's the first thing that's going to happen? What's the second thing that's going to happen? I suspect that incremental climate change disclosure requirements and probably something that moves towards the whole ESG realm will likely be one of the first things we see happen within the public company reporting realm. The speech that he gave, and there's a link to it in the newsletter at London City Week, or it was he delivered virtually to London City Week, Mm -hmm. really, I think, shed some light on what's important for him right now. I also think the discussion back and forth amongst the commissioners about ESG issues is, is pretty indicative of how important this is. I think there'll be smaller projects that get kind of knocked off along the way you know, for example, mandatory electronic filings and transfer agent filings. Hopefully, that can happen kind of in the background. Yeah, But I I think that's going to be sort of the big issue. And then I think they're bound to do something with SPACs. The enforcement actions that have popped up with respect to SPACs make it pretty clear that there's some stuff going on in the markets that's scary. And then something that, that wasn't necessarily actually on the agenda But it's clearly a topic of discussion is what are we going to do with cryptocurrency, cryptocurrency exchanges, all of the different vehicles where cryptocurrency and tokens are trading. There's a lot happening in that realm, too. So I kind of think that we'll see something with SPACs something with ESG, and something going on with cryptocurrency and the sort of wild, wild west that's out there right now as you trade tokens and trade cryptocurrencies. There's nobody watching for unscrupulous people. And one thing we know through experience is if you have an exchange where there's an opportunity to take advantage of people and do things that are unscrupulous, it's going to happen. And it already seems to be happening in those markets. So that's my take. But what about you? What do you think? What do you guys
2: think? (laughs) I think that's right. I mean, there at the end, you're sort of hinting a a little bit, I think, at at DeFi. And, uh, you know, Chair Gensler has has, uh, certainly uh, of late expressed an interest in exploring that space. Um, You know, it's an area where I think we may see people complain about regulation by enforcement. But I think, you know, like Chair Gensler has been really clear, if you're operating some kind of exchange where people can trade potentially hundreds of cryptocurrencies, Currencies, it's it's almost impossible that none of them are securities, right? Even if we just assume that that some of them are something other than a security, one of them is going to be a security, right? And so he's like, we're gonna look at that space. And so mm-hmm. I, I think I think you're absolutely right. I think that is a priority. I, I think what I'm seeing is a little bit of a shift that applies to. Uh, to, to ESG disclosures, to cryptocurrencies, to SPACs. I think for a long time, including for a few months at the beginning of this year, the debate was whether the SEC should do anything in this space. And now I think it's really how. And you're right. There have been a bunch of speeches about ESG in particular, but I think they're almost using ESG as a vehicle to debate what they think the SEC's regulatory remit is. What should they be doing and, and how? And there's absolutely going to be some action taken with respect to ESG disclosures. I think you're right. It's probably going to be incremental, and I think that's gonna um, that's gonna to lead to some complaints. But they're absolutely going to do something about SPACs. They're absolutely going to do something or some things in the cryptocurrency space. So I think we're entering the how phase, and it's going to be interesting to see how that shakes out. But, you know, Chris, I want to I want to let you weigh in here, too, because I have no doubt that you've got a smoking hot
1: accounting angle that you want to flag for us. Yeah, I think the first <laughs> angle to flag, though, Kurt, this might be the first uh, iteration of the UARDA, uh, the Unified Agenda of Regulatory and Deregulatory Actions, that may have been informed by the episodes of the Insecurities podcast from PLI. It seems like the major topics they're covering are Kind of all of uh, the rundown of our past episodes. So I don't know if life is imitating art or art is imitating life, uh, but we may be uh, we may be leading some of the discussions that the commissioners are We're, having.
2: Yeah, we're definitely driving the agenda for that's, sure. That's what I figured. I mean, there's
1: no other explanation for the overlap. No, 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 no. Yeah. I mean, we'll talk a little bit more about the the accounting standards coming down the road, but I think we are at kind of an inflection point, especially as it relates to the disclosure regime, that the interplay between the commission's role and the standard setter's role and the financial reporting professionals playing in that space are, are going to have to all come to, to the mountaintop and decide in what direction we're going to go as – you know, the disparity in practice is going to continue to be a focus uh, point of all of the participants, both from the regulatory side, as well as the standard setter side and the practitioner side.
2: Smoking hot take for you, Kurt. Uh, okay, so there you have it. You got Chris's hot takes. You've got uh, you've got my view on what's going on, and uh, more helpfully, perhaps uh, George's view That's on right. what the priorities <laughs> might be at the SEC. We're, we're
3: all in this together. <laughs> we're all in this together. Charlie. That's uh, definitely we're true. In this
2: of course, none of that stuff happens without the help and support of the staff. Uh, you know, from top to bottom of the commission. And over the last couple of months, Chair Gensler has filled several leadership positions at the SEC, uh, including. A few members of his his own executive team, his own executive staff, which at this point is one of the largest, uh, probably the largest, and uh, almost certainly the most diverse staffs we've ever seen in a chair's office. Um, It includes former uh, SEC staffers, former Hill staffers, uh, former in-house counsel at labor unions. It includes uh, team members who are dedicated to not only standard disciplines like enforcement, but climate counsel and a digital director. And Honestly, the digital director is maybe the hardest working person in the building right now because (laughs) whoever it is, they have completely revamped the face of the SEC. Their Twitter feed is like a new world. They have videos. They have graphics. They've got. I mean, it's it's awesome. It's actually a really good follow, which is stealing some of my market share because right. you know me regurgitating what the SEC is doing is much less interesting now. But you know, in addition to you know the staff in the chairman's office, uh, just in June, Chair Gensler appointed Renee Jones as director of the division of corporate finance. Uh, John Coates, who had been the acting director of corp fin, slid over and became the SEC's general counsel uh, later in. June, uh, Chair Gensler appointed Gabriel Greywall as the director of the Division of Enforcement. So a lot happening over there. Some of these senior level posts are starting to get filled out. George, what I'd like for you to tell us is, you know, directionally, can we glean anything from Chair Gensler's appointments? And do you think that these new folks are, are really going to move the needle in terms of establishing new priorities or effectuating the chair's regulatory agenda?
3: Again, another great question. And, you know, I've got two main thoughts here. One is if you look at Renee Jones and John Coates, they both had been in the academy. So they're they're bringing an academic, thoughtful perspective. They both have deep experience in practice and in public practice, uh, public policy. So I I think there's deep experience in, in the the team that's being built at that senior leadership level. And I kind of like the idea that they spent some time in the academy because a lot of the discussion we're having lately is very theoretical. You know, when you talk about the financial materiality focus of our current disclosure regimen and whether the needs of users are shifting, that's a very thoughtful and a, and in a way a very academic discussion. So I like the combination of backgrounds there. Yeah. And I see the potential for things to really move, especially when you put those people in those senior leadership roles. They step back from just a hardcore practical, how's it going to work in practice realm, which you need to have. And I think they do. And think a little more from a public policy perspective. I think that's going to be an interesting change in focus. I love that the new director of the Division of Enforcement, Mr. Grillwall, yeah. was, was in New Jersey. He was a New Jersey uh, attorney general. Uh, And had had responsibility for uh, several thousand uh, law enforcement officials and that kind of background. So Mm -hmm. that's a great, you know, sort of bring that to the enforcement division uh, approach. But the thing that struck me quite a bit about reading about the appointments to the chairs, um, executive staff, and then his policy group. Was that he's brought in a lot of people with a lot of talent. And mm-hmm. I think that, kind of, that articulates back to the agenda that he put together. I think he's trying to build the team to move the agenda forward and become kind of the CEO of the organization to set policy mm-hmm. and have people to execute that policy. I think there's real potential to see some significant movement on a number of these fronts. And it will definitely be interesting to watch that process again. I also love what you said about the the Twitter feed and all of the um, electronic communication stuff. It's going to be a a fascinating transformation in that regard also.
2: I certainly think so. I mean, look, if nothing else, it already feels like uh, like Chair Gensler is a little more accessible than I think past chairs have been. You know, he has now this little video video series where it's you know like a few minutes with Gary Gensler, and they've got this little graphic that looks like you're in a schoolroom, and then he sits down and in relatively plain speak, uh, which I you know would attribute to his years as a professor, but in relatively plain speak, explains something going on in in the market and why people should care about it and why the SEC may want to act in that space. I think it's great. I, I think it's, I mean, I think it's good government in a sense, but I think it's helpful to explain to folks what's what's going on. Uh, so, I, you know, I'm all for it. And I agree that the folks in, uh, in the chairman's office are a very talented bunch. I mean, their resumes are just sparkling. And so um, I think we all expected that Gary Gensler would be able to go out and find some really, really talented folks and he has done so. And, you know, we'll just see what, what
1: comes out. We'll see how they move that agenda along. Let me ask a question here against all television-based uh, attorney dramas. Uh, advice that I that I don't know the answer to, uh, so I'll pose it to both Kurt, you, and George. <laughs> has there been a time where a, a SEC enforcement chair has come directly from law enforcement in the past twenty years uh, or so, if not if not longer longer running? Not to my knowledge, it has been a trend
2: over the last, let's say, ten years. For the director of enforcement to have served as a prosecutor at some point, Mm -hmm. usually in the Southern District of New York, usually on the uh, Securities and Commodities Task Force. Um, But I don't think we've had one come directly, certainly not from a state AG's office. Yeah, exactly. uh, Right Mm -hmm. into the enforcement director's chair. But uh, George, have, have I missed one or I don't know if you have a different view?
3: not that i can think of not that i can think of and you know i always think of the enforcement division as basically the police force they're the cops you know on the street and that's a that's a mindset that's a different kind of mindset than many other kinds of accounting and legal practice i love talking with attorneys in the enforcement division and i love talking with accountants in the enforcement division Mm -hmm. because it's a totally different frame of reference you know, they're, they're, when I talk to some of the accountants, you know, their basic assumption is that if you're on their radar screen, you did something wrong and we're going to figure out what it is. And I, I think that that'll be an interesting thing to see happen as he administers the enforcement division. Yeah, I agree. Can I toss in one more thing? Yeah, yeah go for it. I, I would like to just mention what's going on with the whistleblower program. Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, and know, the, reason I, the reason I want to do that is I put we put a little blurb about it in the newsletter. But the thing about the whistleblower program is the day you say something about it, that's okay. That's what happened. But the next day, something's new and different. And so as we record today, I just had to go out and take a look at what's happened with whistleblower awards. And in a recent press release, I think it was from about three days ago, the, they actually have made whistleblower awards to 14 people in less than a month. Yeah, And they're almost up to a billion dollars. And whistleblower awards. $956 million paid to 195 individuals. And that's since 2012, which is not all that long a time. I think this is going to be one of the things, while it's not necessarily on the agenda at the SEC, that gets featured in a number of places as they communicate to the public. And it's working. I mean, it's obviously finding a lot of wrongdoers. So I just wanted to mention that because I think it's a really interesting program and it ties back to just the ethical considerations that we all need to think about in both the accounting and the legal world.
2: I agree. It continues to be a hot topic and a focal point for the SEC. Uh, we're actually going to be talking to Jane Norberg, who is a former uh, chief of the SEC's Office of the Whistleblower in just a few weeks. Um, but it, but George, I've been noticing this run of SEC Whistleblower Awards in recent weeks as well. And the thing that that has captured my attention is that they keep rolling them out two or three at a time. And I think the purpose is so that they can have a press release headline or a tweet or a LinkedIn post that says, uh, SEC awards five, six, seven million dollars in whistleblower awards, right? (laughs) And when you click on it, you realize that was maybe three awards. I keep thinking, hey, even if my award was only one and a half million dollars, that's That's still pretty good. A pretty good haul, right? I mean, I would not be disappointed with that. Um, But they have been lumping them together, and I can only assume that it is to continue to uh, draw attention to the program, to continue to encourage uh, potential whistleblowers to come forward, to submit a TCR to the SEC, because it really is driving results. I really think it is an impactful program, and they want to continue to tap that resource.
3: And, And I have to say, I don't remember what episode it was, but I think the episode that you did probably about a year ago with the attorneys who are there to work with whistleblowers to help them protect their anonymity and work through the process. First of all, that was a great episode and probably that helped some people think about that process also.
1: Our listeners are probably understanding why George is a four-time repeat guest. He just keeps pumping our old episodes of the podcast out. And A little Inside Baseball, Episode 6, Inside the World of Whistleblowers, a conversation with attorney Matt Stock, is actually our most listened to episode in the history of our podcast. So not only is the commission focused on these issues, but our listenership is is definitely focused on that as well. So if there are whistleblowers out there who would like to come and talk to us about what that episode meant to them and how that helped them file their complaint with the SEC or the CFTC... (laughs) We would love to have you on.
2: All right, Chris, now we're going to make the big pivot. Um, we're moving from the SEC
1: to the FASB. Tell us what's going on over there or ask George to. I was going to say, Kurt, I won't ask you to tell me what the FASB acronym stands for. We all know it's the Financial Accounting Standards Board uh, based up there in Norwalk, Connecticut. And one of the things that the uh, quarterly newsletter talks about this month uh, it's kind of new to me, George. And again, maybe I'll go out on a limb here and ask a question I don't really know the answer to uh, around the agenda consultation project. So I started my professional career in the in the early 2000s. And for those of you who followed the accounting profession, uh, a lot was going on back then, we'll say, to uh, to put a euphemism on the <laughs> accounting scandals and Sarbanes-Oxley and, and God knows what else was was occurring back then. And I feel like there's been a variety, dozens of plates spinning in the interim standards, rulemakings, uh, the codification, just a nonstop fire hose of, of accounting, regulatory and, and standard setting practices that have really come to fruition across a variety of projects. We've talked about revenue recognition. We've talked about leases, current ASC 842, as you know, um, and that's come to kind of put us in a position where, you know, George, I'm interested in your take on this. There's really kind of a milestone activity here with the agenda consultation project. Uh, Back in December of last year, the FASB came out and announced that they'd be looking at this project to solicit feedback from industry participants and provide those viewpoints on what should be next on their agenda. And to quote the press release, uh, quote, the feedback on this Invitation to comment is essential in ensuring that the FASB continues to allocate its finite resources to achievable standard setting projects that fulfill its primary mission of improving financial accounting and reporting standards and addressing topics that are the highest priority to its stakeholders. To me, George, it kind of sounds like the FASB is turning back around to the profession and saying, Hey guys, what do you want us to do next? Have we seen a similar invitation to comment from FASB in the past? Uh, And then, secondarily, what's your take on the process and what kind of comments we might see come in with this?
3: Uh, you know, I think this is going to be an evolving number of projects that won't be as significant and major as we've seen in the last decade. When you go back to the early two thousands and the days of Sarbanes Oxley and the the board trying to establish standards to report for VIEs and a number of other areas, there's there's no doubt about it. There was a massive wave of standard setting, and then of course in two thousand eight we had sort of the idea of what I will call it, or the concept of potentially moving to IFRS. Mm -hmm. And at that point, it became a huge goal to conform or harmonize US GAAP and IFRS standards. And so several major areas, of course, everybody who lives in the accounting space and most everybody involved in public company reporting remembers all the sound and fury about revenue recognition, lease accounting, huge implementation, costs and efforts required. And I think after all of that happened, more or less in the name of harmonization, it kind of lost that direction after a while. And I haven't mentioned current expected credit losses, probably a more narrowly focused standard. For financial companies though, just a huge issue to deal with. There's so much that happened that was so big that kind of started with the let's harmonize with IFRS thing, that when all of that finally settled out, uh, I think there was just a little bit of exhaustion and, and change shock that drove people to say, what should we really be doing? And after all those projects were done, I think the board stepped back and said, what should we be doing right now? And of course, it's always been a very participative organization. You know, the the board does not establish standards in an, I shouldn't say not in an ivory tower fashion. It is a little theoretical, but they always listen to stakeholders. When you see an original exposure draft for a standard and you see the final standard, you see where the board has changed things in response to concerns from stakeholders. And that's an important part of their process. I think what they've done in the last several years is look more at stakeholders who are the stakeholders, how to kind of weigh different positions from different stakeholders. And just to ask, where should we concentrate our efforts? Because they do have finite resources. So in the invitation to comment, they kind of focus on four main areas. One of them is something they've heard about from stakeholders in a clear fashion, greater disaggregation, more granularity in financial reporting areas, because in many places, things are so aggregated, it's hard to understand exactly what's going on in terms of cash flows and trying to use history to project the future. That's one area. There are other places uh, where there are emerging transactions. We've already talked about cryptocurrency and things like that. But where is there stuff going on where there is no specific guidance? Where do we need to address that? And I think it was probably three years ago at the AICPA, SEC, FASB, PCAOB conference, when people first started to say we need guidance to account for cryptocurrencies. And there's a lot of weird stuff going on there. There are some areas where GAAP probably needs to be improved. One that comes to mind very quickly is debt versus equity. You hear a lot about how the SPAC issue with warrants, was a change in SEC guidance. Actually, I would argue it really wasn't because it was actually an understanding of all the different terms in in the warrants that SPACs were issuing and how those terms had evolved and how those fit into our existing literature. Hugely complex area. Great example of the kind of technical accounting area people would frequently take to OCA to pre-clear. And I don't think anybody had done that until it all of a sudden bubbled up to the surface. And then the last thing that's the fourth thing that's kind of in the invitation to comment is where can the FASB make improvements in their process to help increase transparency? So that's not necessarily about new standards, but I think it's a cool thing. But I I think if you go back to those three areas, more disaggregated reporting, help us understand more of the details. Where are there transactions that are kind of bubbling to the surface where we need guidance? And where are the areas within gap where it's just broken, where it just doesn't work well, or it's too complicated, or where professionals using their best judgment can come to such diametrically opposed positions that you end up with a conflict that's almost irresolvable until you go to OCA to get their thoughts about it. I think those three areas are great places for the board to focus. And I like the fact that they're all addressed in the ITC. And hopefully what will happen is the agenda will actually sort of shake out to address those areas. And, and I think my own personal hope is that there won't be any huge dramatic changes that come from that. But we'll focus on improvements in the stuff that we do today, the procedures and the processes and the way we apply standards today that improve the information we give to users. I really believe there are some places where if you look at the notes to a financial statement, it's hard for an educated accountant to understand exactly what's going on. And you know, some of those are areas that probably aren't as relevant today. You know, there's a lot to work on in the accounting standards setting world without finding big new projects like leases and RevRec, which we've seen in the past. So I'm hoping that we see this invitation to comment build a focused agenda that kind of builds a continuous improvement model for the standards we have today. There aren't a lot of comment letters so far. I took a look at the comment letters that have been put on the FASB webpage so far. One of them, although actually addresses one of the topics you mentioned, the codification, and suggests that the codification is kind of hard to navigate. Um, it'll be interesting to see how all of that stuff fits together. But you can tell I've got some strong feelings about that.
1: Yeah, I've got some too. And And, you know, what stuck with me in the press release and the way that the invitation to comment process works. The second thing that I found interesting in your comments, George, and it relates to the way that the invitation to comment is effectuated is it's not just a complaint box. For those of you who have been following along with the very popular television show, Ted Lasso, in which the American uh, football coach goes over to coach an English Premier League EPL soccer team. Uh, There's a great scene where he reads through the comments that he receives from his players in the comment box, most of which I cannot repeat on the air here. Uh, But those were merely complaints about the way the team was run or how the shower uh, pressure was. Uh, This invitation to comment from the FASB actually focuses on not only complaints, but suggested solutions. And my favorite, uh, each individual uh, commenter is asked to provide the quote, priority and urgency of addressing each topic, end quote, which if you're writing in the invitation to comment related to the standard setting agenda for the FASB, I'm interested in those people out there who would write their issue as moderate or light in terms of the need for urgency or priority. But maybe that's the cynic in me versus how the invitation to comment will actually roll out. One of the things that the newsletter touches on outside of just that uh, agenda consultation project is the standing technical agenda for the FASB as it's as it is. Uh, You know, those projects that are ongoing are still waiting in the wings. George, you talked a little bit about how the technical agenda can play off of this invitation to comment and the agenda consultation project. Do you see any overlap there? And how do we view those two things working in tandem going forward?
3: A great Point to bring out. If you look at the Fasbys Project Agenda, and I'm I'm going to say I'm geeky enough to like to put a link to the Project Agenda in each of the newsletters. You can go out and see all the stuff they're working on, and it's a great tool because you can see the status, where the project is in the process. Is it in early discussions? Has there been an exposure draft? Have there been re-deliberations? You can always find the comment letters. You know, the the project agenda has a lot of things going on. I'm hoping that they use the invitation to comment to focus that agenda and really kind of develop that continuous improvement to accounting standards approach. And, and, it, and I, I don't want to say it feels piecemeal when I look at the agenda today. It's not really piecemeal, but it but it's kind of going off in a number of directions. It'd be neat to see it set some uniform directions. Like I love the idea of where are the areas where specific standards need to be improved. We've got a lot of post-implementation review activity going on. Those those areas are not simple. You know, the FASB has been working on debt versus equity accounting issues for decades. And, the you know, the kind of instruments people use evolves. We need some broad principles. You can't make rules here because the the, the transactions evolve and change. But we need some broad principles that underlie the things that are out there today to be more clearly and consistently expressed and try to come up with a, a new approach there. So I, I hope they, they dovetail together to develop that kind of consistent process. Um, you know, one aspect of that is that frequently emerging issues come to, as you would expect, the Emerging Issues Task Force. If you go look at the Emerging Issues Task Force project list right now, there are no projects on the active list. It's, it's the first time I can remember that being the case. And I think that might be a product of kind of standard change fatigue as we talked yeah. about earlier, but also the yeah. fact that people are trying to sort of consolidate and get, get everything they're doing to be consistent. And I, I think that's a good thing to be seeing in the standard setting world.
1: One of those topics that I know Kurt is just chomping at the bit to talk about is goodwill, right, Kurt? Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. (laughs) I knew it. Goodwill is one of those topics that's currently sitting on the technical agenda. Uh, You know, more appropriately termed, quote, identifiable intangible assets and subsequent accounting for goodwill. End quote. We could spend podcast after podcast on goodwill accounting generally. Uh, The basic idea around goodwill relates to business combinations and one business purchasing uh, the assets of or, or the entire business of another company and paying more than the book value of those assets. You've got this lingering intangible asset on on the books called, it's been termed goodwill. It's an esoteric concept that accounts have struggled with for a long time. And George, I know in the newsletter, we talk about the identifiable intangible assets and subsequent accounting for goodwill as one of the major projects on the FASB's technical agenda. Can you talk to us more about that issue?
3: Well, you know, this is, I think, uh, the, the big project that the board and its staff are working on right now. There are other projects that are, you know, cool, but I think this is the big one everybody's watching. And this project actually started in October of 2018, so it's been going for a while. It's resulted in some neat changes, you know, the qualitative test uh, for goodwill impairment option, The elimination of the two-part Goodwill impairment test so that there's no longer a step two where you compute implied Goodwill. They, they've they've done a lot of neat things for private businesses also to simplify things for private businesses I have to say from my perspective having started my my career as an accountant in the days of APB opinion 16 for business combination stuff and goodwill accounting and, and I think 18 or 17 um, I I think if you want to posit that goodwill is an indefinite life to tangible asset that's a pretty big leap definitely you know it does have some kind of a life because no no business can well, very few businesses continue forever. Could be indefinite alive. But I think amortizing goodwill is really kind of a, a reasonable alternative to consider. And as they made the change that allowed private companies to amortize goodwill, it just begged the question, isn't that the appropriate accounting for most goodwill? And, and surprisingly enough, you know, if you go read the project summary, the project's well along in this last phase. It's not like anywhere near finished, but it's it's got stuff underway. In an er, a meeting earlier this year, the board more or less thought that amortization would be a reasonable approach, maybe a 10-year life. You might be able to support a longer life, but it would have to be capped. Um, I think that would actually make user costs less because the cost of the annual goodwill impairment test, which is required no matter what, uh, can be expensive and and, and a significant commitment of time. So I I like the idea that this is out here. I'd I'd like to see more clarity about how they think it will go in the future, but I'm sure nobody really has a sense for exactly what will happen and how quickly it will happen. Uh, But I, I think that it's moving in a good direction from my own personal perspective.
2: All right, guys. That was a uh, a relatively quick and painless walk through. Painless, come on. Some of the current accounting standards that uh, are covered in the September 2021 quarterly newsletter. I would just like to point out we got through that with very few, if any, acronyms. I noticed that we breezed right over Cecil for current expected credit losses. Come on, Chris. Put me on. He the board can for be that taught, one. Kurt. He can yeah, be he taught. Can. Nice. Um, but I'm going to throw a question back at you, Chris, because I would like to know your take on the acronym for identity. Identifiable intangible assets and subsequent accounting for goodwill. It
1: is, n- it is not as fun as you are, to, unfortunately. There's way too many vowels yeah. in the IASAG. Uh but we'll, uh, we'll have to deal with that on a future episode. We've got another big topic to talk about before
2: we go. And, you know, Chris, as you know, sometimes we try to do what we call straddle topics, where we're sort of have one foot in in two different realms. Here, that would sort of be uh, securities regulation and accounting at the same time. Yep. And what we want to talk about is ESG, which has come up already a few times during the conversation today. But I think what we want to understand, or, or George, what I hope you can tell us is a little bit about where we're going. I mean, th- it seems like there has been a speech every week for the last couple of months about ESG. And it's sort of, you know, Commissioner Peirce and Commissioner Roisman on on one side, largely talking about how the existing disclosure framework and materiality uh, thresholds or tests um, would apply equally to at least climate change. And then, you know, folks like uh, like Commissioner Crenshaw and, and Chair Gensler on the other side saying, look, we really need some more specific regulations here that relate to things like Climate change. So, my my question for you is, you know, where do you think we're going? You mentioned earlier that there could be incremental changes. We're seeing that actually a little bit, like within the last uh, within the last couple of days, the SEC approved new board diversity disclosure requirements, and we are expecting before the end of the year some kind of climate change disclosure rulemaking. So, George, what do you think it's going to look like? If you have an inkling, and and how does that sort of relate? To, uh, to your experience as an accountant?
3: Well, I, I think that we will see something proposed. I think it'll be very controversial. Mm-hmm. I think they'll probably also give it a fairly long comment period. But you mentioned all of the speeches. Chair Gensler it was towards the end of last month, gave a speech and it was for something that was the Climate and Global Financial Markets webinar Mm -hmm. And in that speech, he actually said, I have asked SEC staff to develop a mandatory climate risk disclosure rule proposal for the commission's consideration by the end of the year. Now, that's climate change, and I think that's an important area to address. If you go back to the original climate change financial release, FR number 82, which was way back in 2010, as we mentioned earlier, there's actually a, a statement there that links back to what companies are voluntarily doing in their ESG reporting. And, you know, many companies, I I think if you look at the Russell 1000, a large majority of them produce some sort of a, quote, sustainability or citizenship Mm -hmm. or client, you know, ESG report. And one of the things FR82 says is, and this is kind of a quote, although much of this reporting is provided voluntarily, registrants should be aware that some of the information they may be reporting pursuant to these mechanisms also may be required to be disclosed in filings made with the commission pursuant to existing disclosure requirements. And the previous administration's proposal and then new rule to include human capital resources disclosures as part of item one in a 10K via SK item 101 not to get too geeky into the details of how it all works. (laughs) That's a great example of the sort of growing, I think, recognition on the part of investors that in terms of longer term value creation, some of this information can be very relevant. And of course, even Larry Fink, uh, actually in his uh, letters to uh, shareholders, letters to fund holders, and letters to CEOs, has talked about the need for this information in the context of longer-term value creation. You know, the the speech that uh, Commissioner Heron Lee gave that the talked about you, can, you cannot direct the wind, but you can adjust your sails, I think is kind of bridging to the idea that the informational needs of the world around us is important and, mm-hmm. and, and also changing. On the other hand, I, I always think of speeches with titles like chocolate-covered cicadas. <laughs> Beautiful topic and, and well-articulated. She's got a series of sort of 10 thesis points that are really thought-provoking. There's a lot to be thought about here in terms of what really is relevant, to, inv- to investors and other users. What is strictly within the, the regulatory purview of the SEC? And and how, how can companies produce information? One of my favorite uh, ESG-related activities is to try and compare disclosures about particular areas between different companies who, who focus on the same area. Now, that, mm-hmm. that's a little nebulous, but here's an example. A resource that's really important to both Coca-Cola And Pepsi Cola is water. So what are you doing about the availability of water and how your use of water impacts the communities where you manufacture your beverages? If you try to compare the things they say about their use of water, it's pretty complicated to do that and hard to do that. Now that to me is something that longer term could become pretty important. Developing a framework to help address that and provide consistent information I think is a huge task. Other organizations have undertaken that task. The Sustainability Accounting Standards Board has standards I think in 77 different industry groups to try to provide some sort of framework for consistent and comparable information. But that's all voluntary right now. So we'll see. I, I I do think there will be some movement here. But I think Commissioner Roysman asked a great question. Can the SEC make ESG rules that are sustainable? Kind of a neat little pond. I think those people have the best speech titles of any that I've read in the last decade. <laughs> with all those little um, tongue-in-cheek things going on. But I, I think something will happen here. And it'll probably happen in a fairly... Um, incremental I hope incremental and in logical fashion but I, I I hearken back to the episode with Wes Bricker and kind of the development of requirements to report accounting information way back in the wild Wild West days which is probably you know the 20s and the 30s lots of companies did not report financial information mm-hmm. even though that was very relevant and we could have had the same argument is this information really relevant? To an investment decision and had people take similar positions. So I, I think we're living in a very exciting and evolutionary time, and there's going to be some neat stuff going on.
1: I think there really is an arms race in terms of uh, tongue in cheek speech titles that are coming out. So if you remember our conversation <laughs> with Commissioner Peirce, we actually suggested some based on some of our favorite uh, hip hop and popular music references. So any commissioners out there listening, if you're interested in some speech title ideas, Kurt and I are happy to fill the void for you.
3: That was a great episode, by the way. Also, I've Got <laughs> exactly. to plug of when they happen, But the conversation you had with her was fantastic.
1: Briefly, George, just to wrap. I know there's another announcement in the newsletter about uh, a, a combination, not a... a FAS 141 combination, but one of the standard setting community. You talked about the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board or SASB and the IIRC, Kurt, not a challenge to ask you. That is the International Integrated Reporting Council. Uh, Those two, as as, uh, announced last year, have completed their combination to form the Value Reporting Foundation, which, George, I'm interested in your take on what the VRF, the Value Reported Foundation's role is going to be in standard setting related to ESG going forward.
3: Well, there has truly been an alphabet soup of organizations. Right. We haven't talked about, you know, the, the different reporting initiatives for climate, the GRI, all sorts of different organizations and frameworks out there. The, the, I think the arms race descriptor is pretty pretty on point. Who is going to be the sort of big wheel that makes the standards? Chair Gensler has said he believes it should be the SEC who really sets the rules. We'll see how that all fits together. But I think that if you look at the combination of the SASB, who actually has all these different sustainability standards by, I think, 77 different industry groupings, they've done an incredibly detailed job and they've, they've gotten all sorts of process steps involved, similar to the process steps of the FASB. They submit um, requests for comment, they get Invitations to address specific areas to different stakeholder groups. They do exposure drafts. They get comments back. It's a, it's a really interesting process they've used. Um, the IIRC has focused more on a value creation reporting framework. You know, if you're a tech business and having the talented people in your company to do your Tech development is a crucial part of your business. Our current financial reporting framework doesn't address that at all. So what are your retention rates? How do you train people? How do you cross-train people? You know, those, those are kind of bridging to the human capital resources disclosures that many companies are grappling with right now. I think putting these two organizations together creates someone who has the staying power and the potential to be a real standard setter in this realm. And it'd be interesting to see how the SEC, it will be interesting to see how the SEC adapts to the idea that there's a lot of work that's been done, and maybe they can bridge to some of those standards. Um, We'll see. Yeah,
1: I like the way you you've voiced that, George, not only industry focused kind of financial reporting nuts and bolts from the SASB side, but also that qualitative or value reporting side from the IIRC. So our hope is that that can help lead the conversation in some of these uh, wonky areas, if not fresh areas uh, from a, accounting and, and financial reporting perspective. Excellent. Well, George, thanks again for coming on. And we're really looking forward to looking at all the information in the SEC Institute's quarterly newsletter that should be out within days of this podcast being published. Uh, Kurt, what's the website again that folks can find more information on the SEC Institute? It is pli.edu slash programs slash S-E-C-I. Check it out. Makes great sense.
3: Yep, And if you just go to our regular PLI webpage, you'll see a link there to SEC Institute. And I do believe if you follow that SEC Institute link, you'll find the link to the Insecurities Podcast also.
1: There he is again, our favorite (laughs) guest. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks again, George, for joining us.
3: Oh, thank you. very much.
1: Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. And a special thanks to our guest, George Wilson of the SEC Institute at PLI. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA. And I'm at EnforceUpdate. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in.
0: Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, InSecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of InSecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu slash membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.